It's time for The Outspoken Cyclist, your weekly conversation about bicycles, cyclists, trails, travel, advocacy, the bike industry, and much, much more. You can subscribe to our weekly podcast at OutspokenCyclist.com or through your favorite podcatching app to listen anytime. Now here's your host, Diane Jenks. Welcome to The Outspoken Cyclist. I'm your host, Diane Jenks, and this is our show for November 13th, 2021. In the first of our holiday conversations, we finally caught up with Brett Horton, who, along with his wife, Shelley, owns the Horton Collection out of San Francisco. In his October 15th e-newsletter, 1K to Go, Brett explains how they've been tracking down all the original World Championship posters, and he's making some of them available in exquisite reprints. Brett and I talk about what it takes to make these reproductions artistically beautiful, from the paper to the printing process, and more. Then, one of the more outrageous cases that Bike Law is currently working on has been blowing up on social media for weeks, and Rachel Maney, National Director for Bike Law joins me to talk about that and some of the continuing issues that keep cropping up for us when it comes to crashes between bikes and cars. Before we get started with our conversation with Brett Horton, though, I'd like to offer a big shout out to Huck Kurinsky. I hope I said that right. He's now a seven-year-old and he lives in Bay Village, Ohio, on the west side of Cleveland. He's a BMX national champion. Huck began entering competitions and winning, even landing a scholarship to train with professionals at the X Games summer camp in Pennsylvania. He eventually entered the U.S. National Championships in California last month. Huck broke the world record for the youngest male to complete a backflip. Way to go, Huck. If you'd like to read the story, you can find it at cleveland.com for November 9th. The first poster was printed in 1893 for the Chicago World Championships, and Brett and Shelley Horton have the original. In 1927, the first UCI Worlds was held, and Brett and Shelley have that poster original. Brett looks at these artistic pieces as snapshots in time, and in our conversation he explains why these posters are no longer produced and how you can add one or more to your bicycle collection if you're interested. Hi, Brett. Welcome back to The Outspoken Cyclist. Thanks for being my guest this week. How are you? Doing great. Thanks. Well, that's good to know. So I get your e-newsletter, and I love I love reading it. And back in October, not too long ago, a couple of weeks, you featured 10 posters that depict the history of the World Championships. We've just been through all the worlds, and I thought, wow, it's getting to be holiday season. What a cool idea. Maybe somebody wants art. My house is filled with bicycle art. Um, tell me about the history of the world championships, because these posters sort of unfold that history. Certainly. Well, the what you saw in that e-newsletter is one that, uh, first of all, the, the, the newsletter is largely driven by my lovely wife, Shelley, who uh, puts these things together. Um, and, but what, for this particular one, myself, I picked 10 different posters that are and and all everything that you saw in that news are we own the original posters so these aren't reprints these are vintage era posters and 
the world championships, it's a little soft when they started, but kind of for sake of discussion, it's looked at as 1893 in Chicago was kind of the first time you, you saw the, the world championships. And then where the demarcation line is a lot more bright is 1927 when it was the first UCI Worlds. And along the way, before 1927 up through today, not every world championship has a poster, but a lot of them do. And, and I've always been drawn to those world championship posters. And the reason being is they're snapshots in time to capture artistic movements and local things of local importance come out in those posters. So if you're looking at something from the 20s, early 30s, you see a lot more deco looking posters. And then uh, it's not only deco, you'll see Belgian deco, or you'll see Swiss deco or French deco. Same thing with Art Nouveau posters, mid-century. So you start, you can really see the artistic movements crossing over with the individual countries. I have a question. Who actually developed or painted or produced these original posters? Who were the artists? Well, the artists, a lot of these are uh, tend to be unsigned, the, and and that can be for a number of reasons, uh, because certainly a lot of manufacturer-related posters are signed by very famous poster artists, and that's true with cycling posters as well. But the the predominance, if you look back pre-war, they, it was all done with stone lithography, and it's very hard to replicate a true stone lithograph poster what using today's print technology you have to expend a lot of money going through a heidelberg press and you get a richness it's still it isn't a stone litho but you can get an equal quality but you see a big shift from stone lithography and stone lithography you are actually using stones and drawing on the stone printing off the stones it's very labor intensive is why it doesn't exist and when offset printing came in, stone lithography was gone pretty quick. But that richness and that high art was a, was what you saw during that pre-World War II era. And then after the war, that's where you started seeing posters that were coming off the printing press and it looked like bad Photoshop by today's standards, uh, being pasted up and a little flatter. And then the, the challenge has been, if I look at posters in the last world championships for probably going on the past 20 years, I'm not sure if I could even fill up one hand of posters that I look and go, that is a gorgeous poster. What do you think changed the artistic quality? And coming from an art background myself, I appreciate things like stone lithography and, you know, silver gelatin prints and things like that. What changed the desire for a higher art, a better quality poster? Well, I think it's uh, it's an issue of budget. And then it was also the medium itself, because if you look back in 1910, tell me how many radio brag broadcasts and television broadcasts, ways to advertise. Uh, you're back to posters and handbills. That's true. That, that was the I, I think the single biggest shift is you had cheaper ways, more direct ways. The expansion of the ability to communicate with people changed how advertisers reached their customers. 
And as a consequence, they're looking, well, we don't need to go out and hire Mish or Pal or whoever the artist may be to do this over the top, fabulous, very expensive poster at the time when we get the same bang for the buck, slapping something into a program at a minute fraction of the cost. And we can now start using more radio facing out on radio, ultimately television. And then the the posters that were coming out almost got diluted to the point that they were just an excuse to throw up the sponsor's logo. And then when you look at the UCI posters now for the world championships, they require the local organizers to slap all these sponsor ones on it. And then it's just visually, it's just offensive (laughs) to my eyes. Um, And, but there's been a couple, there was one in Verona that the posters gorgeous, because they put all of the sponsors below the salvage line, so salvage line, so you can just cut it off. And, <laughs> and then, then the frame it. Looks, and then <laughs> the poster looks great. <laughs> Let me remind our listeners, we're speaking with Brett Horton. He is the owner. He and his family own the Horton Collection. We will give you information about how you can order prints. So you own these originals. You are offering prints from these originals, how are you doing that? What are What is the process you're using to do that? So what kind of paper, what kind of um, size are the posters? Well, yes, and then what we, what we, what's clear is not everyone has the wall space to hang an original, which can be as small as 16 by 20 and as large as a billboard and everything in between. But most original posters pre-war are gonna be about four to five feet tall. And that becomes limiting. And what we what we also saw was it was a situation where people want, not everyone, I, I feel like I, I was never hugged as a child, so therefore I need to own the original of everything. But well-adjusted people are perfectly fine having something that's a nice reproduction, but they don't want the junky things that you're finding, oh, frankly, a lot of the stuff online or a poster shop in the mall. And what we did was kind of did the step back and said, let's pick a handful of the posters that we just visually really like ourselves. And let's go to town and figure out how to make these as good, if not better than the originals. And to that end, then we we have a printer that uh, is sympathetic to cycling that will fire up his Heidelberg press for these micro runs. And we, we get paper that you just can't get anywhere else. We, we, we have a, a bronze die that, that insets into the paper. And then the, we end up, all the reprints, we have them sized on a consistency of 18 by 24 inches. It's on a Mohawk heavier, thick paper that's got some tooth to it so that it brings out a richness. And then all the posters are, are very much cleaned up. So they, frankly, there's a couple of them that look better than the originals, um, which is, was outstanding. But what we did is we didn't want to just have a modern hard race poster. And Shelly has this little term she uses that it's mommy approved, which is if you have stuff that's just a start big racer of a modern thing, your wife will make you put it down in the garage. It gets man caved. She wants it upstairs. <laughs> so the stuff, the images, if you look at, we did five of them on this front run. There's nothing, even the one that's the Tour de France, you look at it, it's a 
it's a very soft, approachable image. And that's really what we're looking for is to have something that bridges into a cycling enthusiast, but that also someone who is a hardcore a fan of the sport also has some optionality on images they're never going to see. And because of the way we printed it, you can't fake it. There's no inkjet that can produce that quality. And for us, it was that vanity project of saying, we want something where we can produce it in a quantity so that people can afford it. But at the same time, that it's going to look like some, you know, it's something special on the wall. These posters are are available for holiday right now. Yeah, and what what we're doing this year is we've decided because we we've, we've been getting a lot of input on people wanting to have. There's five of them. They want to have a, a a deal on buying all of them together, and then there, there we've got our our lithographs that are signed by Eddie Merckx and Bernardino and Devlamic and the other writers, and then we we've we've got three different categories of stuff that we've produced. And on these specific to this art series posters, uh, yes, we've got some smoking deals for the holidays that we, so all, all of our lithographs, the prints and the vintage prints, the three different stuff we're, we're doing pricing that we've never, never done before. So ho- hopefully that'll resonate with the, the folks that are looking for that gift either for themselves or for other people. Well, it's always for, you know, it's always N plus one. So you have four bikes. Yeah, of course there's room for one. You have 15 posters. There's always room for another piece of art. So besides, besides print, you have a couple of other items that are available. And I know you have this vast collection of memorabilia and all kinds of really cool things. What have you gotten recently uh, in the last, since the last time we spoke, and you know what, I didn't look up when we spoke last. It was a long time ago, but let's just talk about the last couple three years. What have you picked up on your travels that has really blown you away? That people would go, "Ooh, I want to see that," or "I want one of those," and you can't have one because Brett has it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the lovely thing when you're talking about posters. There's usually more than one of the that exists, but it's when you get into these really very specific objects that becomes a little more difficult in it. And time is kind of blurred for everybody in the last couple of years. So that's true. I, I, I think I got this couple of years ago was we have the now have the first team trophy, the Tour de France ever issued. And it's uh, this heavy bronze art, very heavy art deco bronze cup, uh, very figural on a green marble base and got, has the wraparound where it's saying Le Tour de France and it has the, it has all the shankings on it. And what was really cool is a perpetual trophy. So much like the Stanley Cup, the winner of the, of the team competition, which was always very important to the founder of the Tour de France, Henri de Grange, that you had to give that cup back the next year. So it's fun for us is we've got photos of that, that cup in different people's hands over the years. And it was used all the way up through um, till after World War II. What was the first year it was presented? You know, I my memory was, I'm, I'm going to say it's 19, in the 20s, I'm thinking 27, 28 in that ballpark. And it may be slightly later than that, uh, but it's cert- it wouldn't have been anything more than in the early 30s. Has anything replaced it? Uh, actually, they did because at, after the war, uh, because one of the sponsors, the main driver, La Auto, there was some 
Nazi collaboration allegations that were being made, and that mm. was on the trophy because they were the they were the sponsor of the tour. They were they were the Tour de France. Um, it turned out to be much ado about nothing. But what I found interesting, and it's a testament to the fact the tour had no money after the after World War II. They used that after World War II because they didn't have the money to go buy a new trophy yet. <laughs> But then so we it was, know it survived the war. It survived the war because it was used after the war. And then uh, the, then uh, it, 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 there was a new trophy that was made subsequent. If somebody wants to see your collection, how does that work? Well, they can contact us. Uh, it, we, you know, we, we have stuff in multiple locations. And we are now in, in kind of the final throes of putting a lot more of our collection, taking it from just the social medias to our website, just to address a lot of that, that there's people that will, you know, aren't going to make the trek to San Francisco that would still like to see this stuff online and in a very cohesive one-stop place, as opposed to seeing whatever we post up on Instagram or Facebook. Don't we need a Horton Museum? Of cycling? No, never. (laughs) (laughs) It's a horrible business model. (laughs) (laughs) Says the businessman who understands. Well, I think the last thing we should talk about, since people can get gifts and holidays are coming up, is how they can contact you. What is the best way? Well, certainly we we have a very, you know, obscure website address called (laughs) HortonCollection.com. That's pretty simple, right? Straightforward. Straightforward and and all of our contact information uh, is there. We also are on uh, Facebook and Instagram with the same, with with, with certainly just uh, searching by Horton Collection. And then bear in mind that what we also have on our website that we sell is we have a lot of original jerseys. We have trophies. We have, because we're in the part now from a collecting standpoint, once we brought all this stuff back from Europe and all these places that was sort of, we realized we have way more stuff than we ever thought, even on original posters. When I'm looking, going, we have several thousand original posters. There's the wants, the needs, and then a whole lot more that we just don't, you know, that need to go live somewhere else. So we're, uh, we've been in the process for now probably the last two years, and we're just constantly putting stuff out. So those who do wish to buy something original, and, and the reality is not everything is really expensive. You can find beautiful posters, uh, original vintage older posters under $1,000, um, just like you can find some nice, cool old jerseys for a couple hundred bucks that would be very iconic. Uh, you know, for, for, for folks, just because it's unique does not make it priceless by any stretch of the imagination. And, and we, what we find is a lot of the people that come to our site or who contact us, they buy a couple things. And that, that's where I feel like I'm the local uh, dealer here. <laughs> the, 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 they, the, the art pusher. Yeah. The, I'm the, I'm, I'm the cycling pusher. They come back and they just keep spending more and more money. And, but for us, it's great because what I, I truly, I think I've just got to that point as a collector when I'm looking at stuff and people send me photos of stuff they've got from us that's displayed over their mantle or in their, you know, home or their office. It brings me a lot of joy to see that, Hey, this stuff is making it out and is being appreciated in in other locations. And and that's kind of cool. I, I no longer am consumed with the notion I have to own everything. That's good. 
<laughs> yeah. We know so, that the man with the most toys, you know, wins when he dies, but maybe not. Well, yeah. Brett, this has been great. Thank you so much for taking time to talk with me today. It's been a delightful conversation. We've been speaking with Brett Horton, he and his wife, Shelly, and his little guy, what, uh, what, Trevor. Trevor, yep. Trevor, own the Horton Collection out of San Francisco. If you want to see some beautiful options for the holidays, hortoncollection.com. Thank you. I hope you have a great holiday, and uh, maybe we'll get out to San Francisco sometime and and, uh, get to see some of this. Wonderful. Thanks. Thank you much. Bye. Bye My thanks to Brett Horton for joining me today. If you would like to take a look at the collection, you can go online to hortoncollection.com. You might want to bring your wallet along, too. So let's take a break, and when we return, we'll speak with Bike Law's Rachel Maney. You're listening to The Outspoken Cyclist. The Outspoken Cyclist is proud to have Bike Law as a trusted partner. If you find yourself in need of legal advice or assistance as it pertains to any cycling issue, log on to bikelaw.com. We are back on The Outspoken Cyclist. I'm Diane Jenks. Waller, Texas is now the scene of two multi-cyclist crashes, two investigations, and so far, one conviction and one indictment. In the first instance, people lost their lives, and the trial resulted in a life sentence for the driver. In the second, a teenager who claims to be a new driver is going to find out what is in store for him in the not-too-distant future. But what is really telling about these crashes is that it took social media to get the cases moving when the police failed to charge the driver and instead let him go. I wanted to try to understand why these crashes aren't being prosecuted to the full extent of the law and what bike law has to suggest if there is ever a circumstance where you find yourself in a crash. Hi, Rachel. Welcome back to The Outspoken Cyclist. I'm really looking forward to chatting with you. How are you? I am well. How are you? Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure, as always. Uh, And I'm great. Thanks. You recently posted, quote, unquote, the 12 days of bike law. And it went something like Florida's Panhandle, NOLA, Austin, Texas, Central Florida, Louisville, Kentucky, Atlanta, Georgia, Waller County, and Liberty County, Texas, another whole issue, Central Florida, South Florida. So in 12 days, you actually were in all these places? Correct. And all active cases? Correct. This is not good news, really. You know, it's it's not good news, but I think that it's a, um, you know, it's a pretty startling reality um, that is unfortunately not shocking for us at Bike Law, uh, but obviously it had an impact on you when when you saw it. For, for every case in which we are involved or are asked to represent members of our community, you know, there's probably by a factor of 10, you know, all of these other crashes um, that either we don't know about or have happened to people who don't know we exist as a resource. But I would guess and say pretty 
confidently, even though it's just a guess, that those are just a drop in the bucket um, compared to the number of crashes that are actually happening all over our country. You know, periodically we report on, I think it's IIHSS, something like that, the the, um, Insurance Institute uh, does some sort of um, sort of aggregation of crashes, and and you saying that this is only a drop in the bucket since the pandemic. Have crashes increased? Is that your sense of it, or is that not the driving force? Um, you know, I, I definitely think that it is a it's a variable for sure that that has to be recognized. You know, when when things closed down, we saw this surge in in bicycling that you know it's a double-edged sword, right? It's it's a wonderful thing at the same time. It also means that there are that many more people that are exposed to potential risk. Um, you know, and when you combine that with an already impatient and aggressive driving culture uh, that, you know, is made up of individuals who maybe they have cabin fever, you know, they're very, very excited to get back out um, to to spend time with friends, to get back to work, whatever it is out on the roadways. You know, it's just a a bunch of ingredients that when you put them all together, the outcome, you know, is not all of that. It's not that surprising. So a question that I have, and I don't know if you have an answer, but maybe you'll have a sense of it. Some of these cases are super high profile. Does having the media highlight them help or hurt, do you think, our cause of keeping people safer on bicycles on the road? I think that's a really, it's a really interesting question. And it's ironically something that we've been talking about internally uh, pretty seriously over the last few weeks, just because of some of these high profile multi-victim crashes. I think the answer is both. You know, it's really about the quality of the reporting. It's about the content, the information that is published and disseminated, not only within our own community, but more importantly, to people who might not be or know or love cyclists. Um, you know, oftentimes what I notice is that our conversations, the ones that seem to be, or we would hope to be the most impactful are held within an echo chamber, right? The, the, the people that see the things that I'm saying or writing about, the, the folks that are tuned into what the Bike Law Network lawyers are doing and uh, the community members that they are representing, well, their audience is contained within this bubble of people who know that we exist either because they've needed us before or they know someone that has or they hope to never need us in the future. So, you know, when we have mainstream media or news channels or publications that are giving attention to these types of things, generally, I think that it's a net positive. The problem becomes, I guess, more nuanced. What happens when the next big thing happens? What if that next big thing isn't related to traffic violence or bike safety or cycling culture um, or law enforcement or prosecutorial response to these things, right? Then these events that all of a sudden were so important, they become, they kind of sit in the shadows of these these other things that generate clicks and whatever (laughs) uh, attention to these, these different channels. 
Let me take a moment to reintroduce you. We're speaking with Rachel Maney. She is the National Director for Bike Law. And as a disclaimer, uh, most of you know, Bike Law does sponsor the Outspoken Cyclist podcast. So uh, I, I do understand what you're saying. I, I do want to highlight one case in particular because it it just illustrates how things can go wrong and then kind of flip around and maybe go right. And I think, it, I think it's an interesting case, albeit a horrific one. Uh, and that's the most recent one in Waller, Texas, the driver Cole rolled and then hit six riders. All of them were hospitalized. And the the reason I want to talk about it is the way law enforcement first handled it, handled it and then it changed. Give us a little bit of the sequence of events and then at when bike laws stepped in, how it changed. So, you know, we, we weren't there. Uh, you know, none of us at Bike Law were there. We're not eyewitnesses to to the crash itself, nor are we eyewitnesses to the response by the city of Waller police. So the only thing that I can speak to uh, is when this happened, there is an expectation that law enforcement is going to rise to meet, hopefully exceed, um, you know, their responsibility to thoroughly and honestly investigate anything that even slightly uh, resembles something as catastrophic as as this. What we know is that at the crash scene, none of the victims this crash were interviewed by the city of Waller PD. None of them were interviewed after the crash uh, when they had been released from the hospital after receiving their emergent medical care. We also know that the Waller County District Attorney's Office was notified about this crash because of social media. You know, it, it to to illuminate something that really should be a a shocking element of how the how this process has played out on the criminal side of things. That's just absurd. Once that happened, the Waller County elected District Attorney Elton Mathis went ahead and he started to get to work. I don't know exactly what that means other than we went from having a situation in which the city of Waller PD essentially did nothing to the prosecutor's office taking control or authority over that investigation, bringing in a special prosecutor who is not from Waller County. And that opened up the door to the last six weeks, which culminated, of course, in this past Monday's press release, which confirmed that the driver was, in fact, taken into custody uh, and was indicted by a grand jury on six felony counts of aggravated assault with a deadly weapon. Which is the outcome, at least at this point, that might have happened a lot sooner had the police done the job on the front end and not be kind of forced into it by the prosecutor? Well, you know, where where the, the city of Waller PD, where their investigation stopped and the special prosecutor's investigation began, I, I, I'm not quite sure. You know, we are involved in the civil side of things, but that involvement for our clients, for our cycling community means dovetailing the criminal and civil sides of things in every case, regardless of whether or not it's a, you know, this has gotten global media attention. To us, it doesn't matter whether it's something like this 
or something that, you know, maybe assessed or valued as a lesser, and I put up air quotes, lesser, you know, type of, of crash. To us, they're all the same in the sense that these things should not be happening. They continue to happen because of a variety of reasons. And the response to these things happening is one of those reasons that they continue <laughs> to happen. Um, so do I think that the outcome or, or these charges or the driver in the Waller crash being taken into custody um, would have occurred sooner if the city of Waller police had done their job? I don't, I don't know. All I know is that it really takes, it takes not only the due diligence and the, just the human concern of this prosecutor's office. It also takes a willingness to connect the dots and do the work to peel back the different layers and figure out exactly what happened. You know, a lot of times what we experience in a variety of different places, not just places like Texas or Florida or you know these these states where we're just seeing a very large percentage of catastrophic uh, bike crashes, but there is a fear, but uh, on the the part of the prosecutor that if they go ahead and have to try or argue this case, that they're going to lose. And our position is, well, you 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 know you shoot for the moon, you land on the stars. We could tell you very very easily how you present this in a way where you have a pretty significant chance of winning as long as you're presenting that to a reasonable group of, of people. You know, can't control what you can't control. Um, but what we have struggled with, what we fight with at, at, at Bike Law is the idea that we can't even get to that step. So the outrage from our community is legitimate. We understand completely because we as well have been conditioned to expect the bare minimum. Right. What we're trying to do is reset that. We're trying to set a precedent in a place that is the least likely to welcome that sort of precedent to say, if this can happen in Waller, Texas, right, if, if there is accountability, if there are consequences for doing this to those who are most vulnerable on our roadways simply because they wanted to ride a bike, that we can fix this in other places as well. So the the Waller crash is important for a variety of reasons. First and foremost, there are six human beings whose lives were changed forever, right? But secondarily, because this could have a potentially positive impact on every person that rides a bike across our country. This isn't the first Waller, Texas crash. No, it's not. And so I'm wondering, I mean, we used to think Florida was a huge problem. Now we're seeing Texas... Uh, well, that's true. It's not like that's changed, which is even sadder. Okay, not mutually exclusive. <laughs> uh, yeah, and we're only laughing because it hurts. Uh, yeah. So, um, th- this is not the first time. Isn't this the same prosecutor as the last Waller case? You know, I, I'm I'm not sure because we're not involved in in the the last one. But what I do know is that the driver in that particular crash was just given a life sentence for. The choices that that they made behind the wheel. Right, 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 right. So here's here's the last thing I want to talk about, and that is what somebody should do. What's the first thing? What's the second thing? If they're either involved personally in a crash or if they witness a crash, what's your best advice for riders on the road today? Given the fact that you may run into law enforcement that is not on your side at the beginning. And maybe they're, they haven't called bike law yet. 
Sure. You know, we have on the first press release that I wrote uh, in, in regards to the Waller crash, I did give a very comprehensive list of what to do in the event that you or someone you know or care about is involved in a crash while you're riding your, your bicycle. So those steps are there for everybody. I think it's a, a an important and comprehensive checklist of things to do and not to do. But generally, you you want to, it's very difficult to put the toothpaste back in the tube. So in the event that you are physically able, this is of course, when people are lucky enough to be conscious, right? To, to be in a condition that allows them to do the following. You want to make sure that you get as much documented information as possible, whether that pictures, you know, the exchange of information, copy of a driver exchange form, the reporting officer's, you know, badge number, the agency for which they're working, all of that stuff, because those pieces of information become the gateway or the doorway to advancing the ball when, you know, we're trying to respond to these things, you know, try not to get into any sort of confrontation with the driver. It it really, at this point in time, given that we're all living through the sharp decline of our society, you know, there are no guarantees anymore as to how somebody is going to respond if you have a volatile reaction, although it's completely justified, you know, obviously we we understand why that's the natural inclination. Um, You want to seek medical attention, even if you feel that you're okay. And again, another word I put in air quotes, okay, compared to what, right? Okay, compared to to how it could have been, sure, but not compared to how you were prior to the crash uh, occurring. Um, And the reason for that is the following. Cyclists tend to be really strong. They tend to be really autonomous. They tend to be really determined um, and resilient. And we're kind of used to I don't know what some people might consider or define as suffering, right? We turn ourselves inside out, pushing our bodies to do things that quite frankly, you know, a, a lot of people would choose not to do or look at us and say, that's absolutely insane. Why, why are you, why are you doing that? And so when you have things like adrenaline and endorphins and shock and trauma, it's not the best time to make a decision about whether or not you need medical attention. Oftentimes, these injuries that that crash victims suffer don't present themselves in their entirety until two, three, four, five, 10, 15 days later. The last thing that you want in the event that you choose to try to recover any money or, you know, for the damages that 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 you've incurred, you need to have documented proof that you've taken the steps to address these these potential injuries But most importantly, the last thing that we want is for someone to not get the care that they need because they didn't realize how badly they were injured when they were in that that moment. We recommend that people give us a call right away. I can't tell you how many clients we have that called us from an ambulance while laying on the asphalt on the side of the roadway. Uh, from an emergency room, from a helicopter, you you know, I mean, we get, we are contacted that early on in the process because the, the sooner that we can be involved in the process and the narrative, the more likely it is that we can secure the best possible outcome. And that's on both sides of things. We wanna know who the responding EMS and police officers are 
We want to know what's going to be written or what the outcome of that crash report is. We want to know exactly who's involved and, and how it's being handled because oftentimes, especially in places like Texas, and you mentioned Florida, um, Florida is probably the, the most important place uh, to, to just to highlight this particular piece of information. Drivers don't have enough coverage to compensate you for your medical bills, for your lost wages, for your pain and suffering, for your damaged property, right? So there are all of these different elements um, that come into play when a crash occurs. And our objective is to make sure that there aren't any steps taken in the beginning that prevent people from taking other steps down the road. All great advice. And we will post your, we posted it on on Facebook, but I'll pull it and post it on the blog for this conversation, because I think that, you know, print it out, put it up on your refrigerator, memorize it. It's really important stuff. Last thing I want to talk about are items that you may have found that you are using or Peter's using, or you're recommending people use when they're riding that help to document a crash or even a threat of a crash? Sure. So there's a lot of technology that's available and all of it is great until it's not, right? Meaning that it's technology. So, you know, there's always the risk or the chance that it doesn't work or it stops working. Um, the, The problem in, just to use the Waller crash as an example, is that, you know, our clients were over 70 miles into one of their last training rides before tapering for Ironman Texas, right? So for anybody that races iron distance or long course triathlon, that could very easily be a six hour day in the saddle. Trying to find a device that's going to document or that's going to run video for that period of time without the battery dying is really, really challenging. And it doesn't matter whether it's a cyclic camera or a GoPro or any other device, right? So you know, for shorter rides and things like that, we ride with the cyclic fly six and fly 12 light uh, and video camera integrated devices that affix to your handlebar or your seat post. Um, you know, some people still choose to use GoPros. People ride with Garmin Varias, which are, you know, they're sensors that essentially will tell you when there is a vehicle approaching from behind. That's fine. As long as people don't use those to rest on their laurels in, in the sense that, we uh, we actually we represent a widow whose husband was just violently killed when uh, a driver plowed into him from behind, and he had uh, well the other rider that was with him uh, was using a, a Garmin Varia. The problem is when you have more than one vehicle that is approaching you from behind in a short period of time or within the same distance, it may not tell you accurately exactly what is is happening. That wasn't the case with this particular fatality. It's just an example of where something could possibly go wrong in the event that a person becomes too dependent upon these devices. You know, I don't think that there's anything that we can recommend that's going to one, prevent these things from happening or force the hand of law enforcement or prosecutors to manage these things correctly. They certainly can help. Right. It, it, it's not going to cause any harm. Of course, then we're confronted with a lot of questions about, well, I captured this on video. What can be done about it? The response in most places by most law enforcement agencies is 
even though you have it on video, doesn't mean that we can do anything about it. We didn't see it. We didn't witness it. We have no proof as to when or how this occurred. It just becomes another point of potentially plausible deniability in, in, in responding. Now, we've been successful in Maryland. We did get a conviction for um, when a driver, uh, there was a close pass. Uh, we, we wrote about it. It's also on our blog, but that was a, a very unique situation. We don't, that is the exception, not the rule. Can it help? Sure. Does it always help? Not necessarily. Is it going to hurt? Probably not. So, um, you know, of course there's, there's no guarantees, but really just like we talk about when people have questions about what to wear when they're riding, meaning, you know, high vis versus something else, another color that doesn't look like a, a highlighter marker. Our belief is that you should be able to wear whatever you want when you ride a bike period, that you shouldn't have to look like a disco ball wrapped in Christmas lights to feel safe. So our advice is general and it's more so whatever makes you feel most comfortable, whatever makes you feel most secure. The reality is, is that the only thing that's going to help is modifying, you know, poor, reckless, negligent driver behavior. Uh, I guess the answer is be hyper vigilant, pay attention um, do the right thing as a cyclist. You know, I, I, there are cyclists who do cause the problem, although I think it's very few and far between. This is a tough conversation and we've had it before. I guess we're going to have it again. I'm hoping that maybe the prosecutions of some of these more horrific uh, crashes will highlight to some people, maybe back off a little bit. I don't know. We um, we hope so. You know, I, I I think that we have over the last five years or so very much so shifted our focus from trying to change and control things that we simply cannot um, to figuring out ways to provide law enforcement and prosecutors with the tools that they need and the support that they need to respond to these things appropriately. Um, trying to get drivers to put down their cell phones or not get behind the wheel when they're intoxicated or pay attention to what's in front of them instead of doing whatever it is that they're doing when they're operating a motor vehicle. You know, it's a pretty futile, um, you know, it just, it doesn't work. However, if we can educate and influence, you know, through providing resources and anecdotal experience, case law, whatever it might be, um, to those who do have the authority and ability to hold people who cause this type of harm accountable, then that is an advancement in, in, in the right direction. It really is going to be up to everybody else to be responsible for the choices that they make. And, you know, it's, when you're operating a motor vehicle, it is one of the few times or few situations in which your carelessness can turn you into a killer. And it's a really important thing, I think, for everybody to think about because many of us are both, right? We're not just cyclists, we're also motorists. Um, and so we're part of, of, of both communities um, and whatever we can be doing to emphasize the importance of individual responsibility and accountability to those who don't ride a bike, um, I think is really important. Well, Rachel, as always, such a great conversation. It's one that's hard to have. 
It's one that I hate having, and yet it's one that's so important. Thank you, and thank Bike Law. If you are in a crash and they contact you and you do not have an office in their state, what happens next? We will make sure that they get the appropriate representation. Okay. We've been speaking with Rachel Maney. She's the National Director for Bike Law. It's bikelaw.com. And uh, she and Peter are just amazing. They do the work and it's hard work and I appreciate it. And so does everybody who listens. Thank you, Rachel. Thanks so much, Diane. Rachel Maney is the National Director for Bike Law. A link to Rachel's to-do list is on our Outspoken Cyclist blog for this episode. And if you need help, you can call Bike Law at 866-204-9172 or log on to bikelaw.com. I hope you enjoyed our show this week. Next week, we'll be speaking with David Lipscomb from CIS Cycling in New York City. David earned his black belt in karate in 1983, and it set the stage for the mental fitness that it took to become an elite cyclist, using cycling to cross-train for his martial arts. And the story just keeps getting better from there. We'll also hear from Sylvan Adams, the Israel Startup Nation owner and founder, who stepped up to help Afghan women evacuate and find their way to freedom. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the Outspoken Cyclist podcast on your favorite podcast app, and please rate the show. All episodes are also available on our blog, OutspokenCyclist.com, along with photos, links, and show notes. I hope you have a great week. Please stay safe, stay well, and remember, there is always time for a ride. Bye-bye. Joining us today on The Outspoken Cyclist with Diane Jenks. We welcome your thoughts and contributions on our Facebook page, or visit OutspokenCyclist.com to leave a comment on any episode. We will be back next week with new guests, topics, conversations, and news from the world of cycling. Subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app and you'll never miss an episode. The Outspoken Cyclist is a copyrighted production of DBL Promotions with the assistance of WJCU-FM Cleveland, a service of John Carroll University. Thanks again for listening, ride safely, and we'll see you next week.